Hairy London by Stephen Palmer. Narrated by R.D. Watson. Chapter 2 Sheremy Pantomile lived in rented accommodation on Gough Square, just north of Fleet Street. Peering out of his front window on the morning after the wager was agreed, he shouted to his valet, McTavish, come here, what's going on? The street outside was choked with brown hair. McMithen McTavish approached, looked out of the window, then shrugged. I don't know, sir. Seems to be a wee bit of hair. It's hair. Do you think Faraday Lemington has brought some tropical condition back from undiscovered parts? Wouldn't it be the first time? McMithum replied. Find me my hacking garments. The walk to my club won't be easy. Aye, sir. Satisfactorily attired, Jeremy allowed McMithum to open the front door, whereupon he strode out and surveyed the scene before him. Goff Square lay hidden beneath hair, so much hair that he could smell it on the breeze, and there was dandruff too, great white clumps of it, like congealed porridge. I don't like the look of this, he told McMitham. Shall I fetch your penknife, sir? Bring that Amazonian machete old Weatherby gave me for Christmas, and a flask of Dutch courage. Aye, sir. The eighty-two, perhaps. Out in the street, Jeremy found himself pushing through thick hair that rose to his chest. Other residents struggled too, notably Benry Halloway Tong, the doctor who lived a couple of houses along. What's going on, dear fellow? Jeremy called out. Benry halted, raised one hand to his forehead to shield his eyes from the sun, then replied. I'm sure I don't know, Mr. Pantomile, some kind of infestation. The ladies are having a terrible time of it, what with their skirts and everything. They may have to wear something else. Inadvisable. Their inappropriate regions overheat if they wear anything other than a skirt. <laughs> I should know what. Common knowledge, Jeremy agreed. Fetter Lane was worse. Jeremy gazed out over a sea of hair that choked the thoroughfare, undulating like seaweed in an ocean tide. From the vertical walls of the buildings on either side of the street, great locks of blonde hair fell, going dark at the roots, he noticed, as if uncared for. But the street was almost empty of people. A few brave men struggled through the hirsute growth, chopping it aside with knives or swords, but never leaving so much as the narrowest of paths, as if the hair regrew without delay. Every hard edge was softened by hair, every roof shaggy, every window bushy. Nearby, an old gentleman stood at his front gate, trying to cut a way through. Jeremy, struck by an idea, called out, Sir! Have you tried setting it alight? Good idea, the old man replied, turning to enter his house. A few moments later, he returned with a small shovel, on which burned several red-hot coals. This should do the trick. Casting the coals into his hairy front path, he hurried back to his front door. Jeremy watched. 
After a few seconds, tendrils of smoke began rising from the path, and then clouds. But soon there was a terrible stink of singed hair on the breeze, and Sherony was forced to plunge into the street and struggle on through. After only half a minute, he was exhausted and sweaty, and the clouds of smoke were worse. He coughed. He hated that stink. He heard the muffled slamming of windows being shut. The other men in the street raised kerchiefs to their faces in an effort to reduce the stench. But it was a hopeless task. One man reached out to strike him on the back with the flat of his sword. You young fool, the man said. This hair regrows at speed. Fire is useless. I didn't know, Sheremy protested. You do now. Sheremy turned and pushed on, annoyed that his brilliant plan had not worked. The men here would know him by reputation, if not personally, and soon local gossip would focus on him. Rather irritating, but what could he do about it? In Fleet Street, the situation was worse, hair at head height. But it seemed a solution had been found, for, coming down the street, he saw an Archimedean floating system beneath which a wicker amplitude hung. Scruffy lads shouted from their eyrie, Read all about it. London gripped by hairy plague. Riverboats to be commandeered by government. Read all about it. As the floating machinora approached, Sheremy tossed up a silver scriven and called out, Throw me down two copies, lad. The lad obliged, though one copy unwrapped itself and descended as a cloud of paper sheets. Sheremy caught the other. London Beneath Hair, official. A government to launch inquiry will report next year. Jeremy tutted to himself, then read on. From our home affairs correspondent. As our capital city rise under the great mat of hair that grew overnight, scientists, government officials, engineers and hairdressers have been assessing the situation. So far, nothing is clear. The hair grows from everything, be it stone, wood, or earth. Very few can leave their homes, and those that do are in peril. This organ already has 15 reports of smotherings, suffocations, and other losses as the courageous men of London town try to keep their city moving. But travel, it seems, will be upon the river and through the air for the foreseeable future. All residents are asked to remain indoors. Do not set fire to the hair. It grows back most speedily. If you cut it, you may for a while make safe passage, but by the time you return, the hair will be back. And never shave it, for all that you do is make the hair regrow thicker and stronger. Sheremy shook his head, folded the newspaper, and tucked it under his right arm. Time to move along. After a while, he discovered a way of walking as if through water, whereby he moved his legs slowly and rhythmically, allowing the hair to move naturally, as if well-conditioned. It was exhausting, but not so exhausting as his earlier frenetic attempts at motion. Where he needed to, thick clumps of old white hair, tight curls not unlike those of Lord Blackenor, he used a machete to clear away. Half an hour later, he was forging his way through brunette thickets up Chancery Lane, with Bedwood's house in sight. At last! A gentleman smythe waved to him. Sir, this way, sir. 
Sharmi clambered out of the hairy street and struggled up the steps. At the top, he sat down, fatigued beyond endurance. My word, he said between hoarse breaths, I'm quite exhausted. It's taken me well over an hour to walk here from Gough Square. I have heard similar tales, sir. Are there many at the club? Very few this morning, sir. Most of your associates have not been able to escape their homes. It's a very devil of a pickle, Jeremy said. Fetch me a double brandy, then find out if Sir Hosley's available. Very good, sir. Jeremy regained his breath then. When gentlemen did not reappear, entered the marble hall, spotting the doorman high up on a balcony. A gentleman, my query? Sir Hosley's in the Chinese breakfast room, sir. My apologies for not returning sooner. I was detained by a phantasmagorical mongol. Jeremy ascended to the breakfast room, where he found Sir Hosley and Lord Blackenor busy with plates of Saharan baboon. Lord Blackenor gestured him over. Quite melts in the mouth, tuck in. Jeremy glanced at Sir Hosley, then took a seat, allowing a servant to deliver a plate of steaming bushmeat. What's going on? he asked. Nobody knows, Lord Blackenor replied. I've been on the telecombustion machine, and not even my man in Whitehall knows the score. I can't understand it. Damn papers are saying the entire city's beneath hair. Can that be true? Until more reports come in, we can't be certain. I fear insurrection, if truth may be told. The Cockneys will be up in arms and tearing down the East End before you know it. You simply can't trust them, you know. You just can't trust them. Sir Hosley mournfully echoed. "'What will the club do?' Jeremy asked Lord Blackenor. "'For the moment continues if nothing has happened. I find that's usually the best way to proceed. Alas, Faraday has not yet appeared, and I fear he's entangled in this wretched wig somewhere.' <laughs> "'With luck,' Jeremy mumbled under his breath. W "'What was that?' Sir Hosley asked. "'He's stuck,' Jeremy said. "'Decent bit of baboon, this.' Any stewed leeches for dessert? Sir Hosley frowned. So, Pantomile, know any good barbers? I have my man to see to that kind of thing, Jeremy replied. I do find barbers to be vulgar more often than not. Don't you agree? Quite, Sir Hosley replied with an acid smile. But, Pantomile, the wager is unaffected by this hirsute development. I had realized that, dear fellow. Jeremy stood up, dabbed a napkin to his lips, then said, I'm too full for leeches. If I can, I'll be here for supper. Farewell, gentlemen. Returning to the front of the building, Jeremy stood for a moment on the top step. Gentlemen smiled at his side. The doorman said, Are you planning to return home, sir? I don't know what I'm going to do. Try and see if aught can be done about this cursed hair. There must be some explanation. No doubt the illusionists at the Institute will be dreaming up scientific experiments right now. That Rutherford chap seemed sound. Jeremy nodded. Why, yes, the Institute. Good notion, that. Those chemical-stained boffins will have some answers. I believe I may go there at once. But how, sir? A bald and Archimedean floater, if I can locate one. With that, Jeremy jumped down the steps and entered the hairy thoroughfare heading south for Fleet Street. But before he reached it,
he heard a scream and saw a white parasolette waving above Chancery Lane's brunette logs. At once he forced his way across the street to grab the parasolette and pull it free. Nothing. What on earth was going on? But then he heard a muffled cry, and without thought for his own safety he reached down to encounter a hand. The hand grasped his. He pulled until the rest of the person appeared. It was a lady, or at least a woman. She appeared to be wearing trousers. Velvine Orchard Tide departed Bedwood's house and hurried to the nearest empty hansom cab. Uh, climbing aboard, he said, To Ebury Mule's Belgravia as quick as you can, and don't spare the whip. Very good, sir, said the cabbie. Velvine sat back. He had taken something of a risk to accept Pantomile's ludicrous wager, but, with nothing better to do and little by way of funds, Hurry up, man, he called out. Lot of traffic tonight, sir, the cabbie replied. Strand is packed with horseless carriages during the Chinatown to watch Apple race. I think I should ban it, sir. Well, just go as fast as you can, eh? Or they could hold it on a Sunday when everyone's at church. <laughs> Velvine chuckled. Good idea. <laughs> You're a religious man, are you? No, sir. I just like what Mr. Marks has to say. Religion? Well, that's quite enough of that. Shut up and drive on, eh? Yes, sir. Before disembarking, Velvine checked his appearance in the glass window before him. Of middle age, thinning hair, clean-shaven, with watery blue eyes and a hook nose. Black jacket and pantaloons. He glanced down to see shiny black shoes and white socks. Out on the street, he glanced up at his parents' apartment, which sprawled over a number of floors and house numbers. Luckily for him, the Orchard Tide family were exceedingly wealthy. Funds, Velvine, he muttered to himself. It's all about funds. He unlocked the front door and entered, but at once sensed an atmosphere in the house. Normally there would be a rivulet of chatter falling down the stairs, the sound of music from a string orchestra, or perhaps the latest 78 record playing on the monogram. But tonight, nothing. He decided to creep up to his own rooms, which lay at the top of the building, below the flat roof. But he did not get far. Velvine? That was his mother, the dragon. Yes, he replied. Come to the evening parlour at once. Velvine swore under his breath. Surely they'd not discovered his rearrangement of the lion candlesticks.